working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey all, thanks for joining us for another episode of Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and my interview today is with Jamie Tate. Jamie is based in L.A. uh, and has made a name for himself there, touring and recording with two of the biggest names in smooth jazz, David Benoit and Mindy A. Bear. Now, I know smooth jazz is a four-letter word in many circles, and uh, Jamie is the first to say that in some cases that reputation is very much deserved. Uh, But in this interview, he talks about the positive things he's taken from it and why those of us wanting to play drums for a living shouldn't be immediately dismissive of it. He also talks about his relationship with his grad school mentor, Peter Erskine, and uh, the other musical disciplines that he's ventured into over the last few years. Uh, And he tells a great story that'll have you wondering what you would do if a four-month tour got canceled three days before it was supposed to start. If you haven't already, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's a great way to stay up to date on episodes and see who else is listening to the podcast and what we're all up to out there in the gigging world. Uh, Post pics and videos using the hashtag WorkingDrummer, and we'll be liking and reposting accordingly. Also, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, We want to keep making the podcast bigger and better, and you can help us in that regard. Uh, You can also help us the old-fashioned way and just tell someone about the podcast. Uh, Word of mouth is still a powerful thing, and, and nowhere is that more true than the drumming community. So thanks in advance for that. Now, please enjoy my talk with Mr. Jamie Tate. I wanted to start with, with USC and, and Peter Erskine, because I know he was kind of your, your primary mentor in grad school, and he's someone that I've been fascinated with for a long time, both as a player and as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, I know him a little bit. Uh, I, I met him a few times when I was in L.A., but you obviously have a very close, longstanding relationship with him. So uh, talk about talk about Peter. Well... All right. Well, I met Peter when I was about 19. Uh, we, he was doing the, the day of percussion in Orlando Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was being hosted at, at Rollins college, which is where I went to undergrad. And, um, uh, the percussion professor, this woman named Beth Gottlieb, who incidentally is married to Danny Gottlieb. Um, Mm -hmm. she, uh, she was running the thing. She was the host and she basically, uh, put me in charge of Peter while he was in town. She just said, look, anything he needs, you get it for him. You drive him around, you take his drums wherever they need to go. You're basically, you are going to be Peter's, uh, errand boy for the, for the week or whatever that he was there. And, uh, so I got to know him a little bit. I got to talk to him about things. And, and, um, I said, listen, you know, this summer I'm going to be doing the, the Disney all American college band. Uh, and so I'm going to be out in the LA area working in Anaheim and I'd love to take a lesson with you. He said, sure, you know, here's my number. Give me a call when you get into town. And so I went over and I took a lesson and, uh, and I got to say, man, that, that very first lesson changed my life. Um, and, and that's, and that's not even trying to overstate a point. Like he, he really did change everything for me. I, in one lesson, I realized like what I need to do, uh, both musically, professionally, personally, uh, to be able to try to create a career at the level that I wanted to create. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he just, he basically put me in a whole different direction. What were the, what were the changes you had to make? Like what were some of the ideas that you had that, that he had to disabuse you of as a youngster? (laughs) Well, you know, the, the biggest ideas musically came in the form of time, Mm -hmm. uh, talking about how to keep time and, and, um, how to think about time. You know, it was very conceptual. Mm-hmm. He was the, he was the first teacher I had drum wise that really got away from teaching me, you know, I was talking about technique and rudiments and, and, uh, you know, sort of nuts and bolts stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was the first guy that got into talking about music concepts and, and, um, sort of bigger picture. Yeah. Uh, and that meant a lot. I mean, it, it definitely, um, it, that was one of the first things I think that steered me in another direction. And then to get to watch the way that he worked, um, his attention to detail, uh, playing, uh, his attention to detail, even in, in crafting an email, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 
um, the, the man has like the best grammar on earth <laughs> and, and he will zing you if you use bad grammar with mm-hmm. him. Um, and you know, just really it was about the attention to detail and, and, um, and seeing, you know, I got to go to a couple of sessions that he played and, and, uh, you know, live gigs. And then when I moved to town, I started carrying his drums around. <laughs> uh, and that was like, uh, it was some extra cash, yeah. which I needed desperately at the time. Um, and well, I mean, let's be honest, we all need extra cash, right? I yep. could use some now. Uh, but wait, do you, you know, have any? Uh, yeah. Can I borrow 20 bucks? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll hit you back. I swear. Right. I, right. I, I'm good for it. I'll Venmo you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or Bitcoin or something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, like, so getting to work for him and, and see him in action, see him in these, these, you know, sessions for TV things or record dates and just the way that he, he held himself, mm-hmm. the way that he, um, the way that he played the gig too. Like, it, so it, his whole influence really had to do with like, I mean, it was this musical stuff. It was these big picture concepts that we were talking about. Uh, but it was also like how to handle yourself as a professional, mm-hmm. um, and, and some of the skills that you need there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I, one thing I do remember specifically was, you know, we spent, so my, my very first lesson with him that, that, that summer, I ended up taking a handful of lessons that summer kind of throughout the whole run of the Disney band. And, and even to the point where, uh, when we got kicked out of our apartments at the end of the, the, uh, summer, I had scheduled my flight a day later because mm-hmm. uh, I thought, we, let's say it was the 16th. They kicked us out. I thought we were leaving on the 17th. So I had a day where I was like, oh, what am I going to do? <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a place to live for a day. Um, and I was over at Peter's taking a lesson and he said, so, you know, are you excited about going home and seeing your family? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm just a little concerned about what I'm going to do <laughs> as far as a place <laughs> to stay on this day. And he goes, oh, well, you know the wife and kids are out of town. Why don't you just come over? You can stay here. We'll do a lesson. Uh, we'll go see Bill Holman's band who's playing that day. So we can drive down there together. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll have some dinner and then I'll take you to the airport the next day. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this is the nicest human being on earth. Right. You know, he, he, you know, I don't know how many people would, would ever do that for me. Right. But, but I remember specifically that the, the first lesson you know, I, I walked in thinking I was kind of a hotshot young player and I had done the Disney band and I had already had like a, uh, a little article in downbeat about, you know, young up and coming drummers to watch and mm-hmm. stuff, their musicians to watch. And so I thought I had a lot of stuff going on and, uh, he, he sat me down and I, I played like, he said, play me some medium swing time. And, uh, and so I, I played for a little bit, maybe, I don't know, 16 bars or so. And he cuts me off and he's like, yeah, you know, you're, your bass drum's just not quite lining up it, it, and it's a little loud, like within the balance of the kit. So why don't you just not play the bass drum for a little bit? <laughs> okay. So I start playing again, ding, ding, getting, ding, getting. And he stops me again and he goes, you know, the, the, the snare drum is not, you know, it's again, it's loud. It doesn't really fit the balance with the ride cymbal and stuff. And, and the time is a little weird. It's not making musical sense. Why don't you just not play the snare drum for a little while? <laughs> okay. No snare drum. <laughs> So I start playing time again. It's just hi-hat and ride cymbal. And he goes, yeah, you know, you're, you're the two and four on the hi-hat. It's just not lining up with the, you know, there's, there's, it's not in the grid with the, mm-hmm. with the, uh, ride cymbal. So don't, don't play the hi-hat. Oh God. <laughs> so now I'm playing just the ride cymbal beat and he stops me. And he goes, you know, I just can't hear the triplet the way I need to. Why don't you just play quarter notes for a minute? <laughs> so, so I walked into this lesson and I, you know, thinking I'm kind of hot stuff. And then within the first 10 minutes, I'm playing quarter notes on the ride cymbal and can barely do that right. Right. <laughs> um, but we, we, he proceeded to put me back together. And by the end of the lesson, I, I had a whole lot more of a concept of what the triplet meant and the ride cymbal pattern of the importance of the focus of the ride cymbal sound, mm-hmm. the way that I would use my arm in that. And then, mm-hmm. then we got into talking about all these conceptual things about what the triplet means and, and how to feel it and how, you know, I mean, it got, it got really deep and it was like, man, that, that, that was huge. Yeah. yeah. So I went through that whole summer and then I went back to my, my school where I was and the, the jazz director at, at, at Rollins, this guy, Chuck Archer, who's this brilliant bass player and a, and a great guy. And when he started off the first tune, my first time back in school, you know, and he starts off the first tune and about eight bars in, he cuts off the band and looks at me, he goes, 
what did he say to you? <laughs> like, what do you mean? And he goes, you're a completely different musician. Like you, your, your whole thing is different now. Yeah. And it really was, you know, you spend a summer playing with musicians who are infinitely better than you. Cause the, the college program there at Disney is incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys that they get are, are the best of the best around the country. And then to spend a whole summer working with Erskine and talking about such big, heavy musical concepts, like I got back to school and, and I was an unrecognizable shell of my former self in a good way. Right, right. And so, I, I love that. I love that about Erskine's playing and, and his approach to teaching where it, it's it's about it's about getting the little stuff right. Like he's, yeah. he stripped you down to quarter notes. Yep. And and even if you don't add any of the triplet stuff or any of the snare chatter or any of that, like if if you can play really good quarter notes on the ride cymbal, you really don't need much else. Don't need much else. You know, all the rest of it is, is musical expression, but everything has to start there. Right. Right. Yep. Um, he, he has a a kind of persona as a a very nice dude, a warm dude, you know, like you said, but I also kind of get the impression that, that with his students in particular, there can be uh, like a a very tough love side to him. Uh, Yeah. Big time. (laughs) Big time. I reminded him recently of a story. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't get mad at me for telling this. Uh, he, uh, I had done, you know, I was at USC doing my master's degree and he was teaching there and, and, uh, they did at the time I was a Yamaha artist. He was a Yamaha artist Indugu was there, was also a Yamaha artist. And then Greg field was also a Yamaha artist. And they, all four of us were teaching at the school at the same time. Mm-hmm. So they did this like Yamaha drums, USC, drum night thing mm-hmm. with the with the big band and uh i opened the concert and it went really well um and he came over to me on the break and he was like yeah man you're swinging it sounds great it's like woohoo all right cool yeah. i got a compliment from peter right uh and at the end of the night they they did a um <laughs> um i think peter started the tune he was like the last guy to play you know they they did like three tunes each. Like I did three tunes. Another guy did three tunes. And then at the end of the last tune of Peters who had gone last, they get into a vamp. And I think it was on all blues. In mm-hmm. fact, I know it was on all blues. It was a Vince Mendoza chart on all blues. And, um, so they're, they're going boo, boo, doo, doo, boo, doo, doo, boo, doo, doo, and the band's just vamping. So Peter plays this open drum solo over the vamp. Then he puts the sticks down and stands up. And then Greg sits down and he plays a drum solo. And then he puts the sticks down and Dugu walks up. He plays a drum solo. Mm-hmm. Then I, and then he puts the sticks down, and I have to walk up and play the last. I have to be the cleanup batter <laughs> and take they, the. They tune. planned that. They were like, "Let's put the let's put Dude, the kid last." Yeah, let's put <laughs> as much stress on this kid as possible. Um, and to be honest with you, I completely stepped all over myself. Uh, I got I got completely wrapped up in my head. Yeah. I let my ego take over, and uh, and I sounded terrible. Um, and I, and I knew it, <laughs> uh, but I, uh, you know, we got to, I got done with the tune and, and I'm walking, I stand up for the, and it was one of those moments, like I stood, you stand up from the drum set and you're like, yeah, dude, that was not it. <laughs> I knew that was not it, but I, I walked over and everybody's going to go take a bow and we all put our arms around each other. And Peter like kind of moves around and nestles himself between, I think it was me and Ndugu. Then he nestles himself in there and he kind of, you know, puts his arms around both of us. And as we go to take the bow, he leans over to me and he goes, not your best. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and so sure enough, I got home that night and, uh, and and this but this is the brilliance of Peter. So, so you know, he zinged me at the concert and then right. I got home to this pretty lengthy email, which I actually just came across the other day when I was going through a bunch of stuff in my studio, like cleaning out hard drives. And, and I found this email cause I saved it and mm-hmm. it, it, it really, uh, it was poignant. It was, uh, important for me to hear, but it was not pretty. Mm-hmm. It was not, he was not nice to me. Um, <laughs> uh, and no joke. So I lived in this little crappy studio apartment, uh, in Hollywood and I, tail between my legs. I go back to my apartment and I'm sitting there and I get, you know, you've got mail and I've got this email from Peter and it's long and I read it and without exaggerating, I'm sitting in my apartment just crying. You know, I I thought I have, I've done it. I'm done. (laughs) I I should pack my stuff and move back to Florida and be done. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but by the end of the email, again, just like that lesson, he put me back together and he said, listen, you're better than this. You're a good musician. You let these things happen. And here's why you let them happen. And here's why you're never going to do it again. And I was able to walk away from that 
you know, and, and to me, this is the, the, the great thing about a great teacher is you can walk away knowing like, yeah, that wasn't right, but here's what I need to do to make it right next time. Mm-hmm. And I know that I can do it. Mm-hmm. I have the, the confidence to do it. And he was able to inspire in me the confidence to, to make that change, uh, to make those changes, I should say, cause there were a lot of things wrong. <laughs> 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 uh, but, but you know, the, the biggest thing that was wrong that night was, um, and, and something that, that Peter really st- preaches, uh, in his teaching is, is the, the biggest thing that I did wrong was ego. Mm -hmm. Uh, I let my ego get the better of my drumming. And when your ego gets, gets in the way, the music suffers. Right. Always. Um, you played, you played with an agenda. Yeah, I played with an agenda. I'm going to show these guys what I got. Right. And, and that's useless. Uh, you, you've left behind, um, you know, your, our job is to serve the music. Mm-hmm. Our job is, is to make the, you know, the people around us sound good and to, to be musicians and to serve the music that, um, you know, my mom is an artist and, and, uh, art in general has always fascinated me growing up, you know, around artistic people. My dad's also a musician and, and, uh, sculpture. I, you know, was always something I thought was really interesting. And I, I remember reading, I forget where it was, but a, a sculpt, an artist, a sculpture artist saying that, you know, the piece of art already exists inside of this block of whatever, like if it's a block of wood or clay or whatever it is that they're, it's my job to just whittle away the parts that don't belong and, and show you what's already inside. Right. Um, and music is, you know, sometimes I, I like to think of it that way. Like this music exists and it has to just come through me as a vessel. Um, and if you think about that, then if I let ego get in the way, then it's acting as a filter that's just going to destroy or warp what could come through me in a very pure form. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so that was that was sort of the lesson that night was like, dude, you got to leave that at the door right. and, pl- and play music. Yeah. But, but yeah, he's a tough cookie. <laughs> You've been in L.A. and out of school for about 15 years. Yeah, yeah, I finished I finished at USC in 03. Okay. So, yeah, 13 years. Yeah, and since then, um a couple of the the biggest artists that you've played with are David Benoit and Mindy Abear. Yep. Who are both uh at kind of the the top of the the smooth jazz ladder. Um yeah. and I wanted to talk to you about your experience with smooth jazz artists and in, you know, in the smooth jazz world. Uh-huh. Um, because I think it's often maligned. Um, uh-huh. yeah. You know, and, and often rightfully, <laughs> yeah, often rightfully, but, but sometimes not. Um, and, uh, I just, you know, there's, we, we hear about what's wrong with it. We hear about what sucks about it. Um, but what, what has been your experience, uh, in that world and, and what are the virtues of it as a, as a professionally and, and musically? Well, okay. Yeah. And, and that's an excellent question. Um, like we said, often maligned and, and often it, that's, it's, um, uh, deservedly so, mm-hmm. uh, cause there are an awful lot of really jive artists in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, they, they are jive because they are in that world for the sole purpose of making a buck. Mm-hmm. Um, and once upon a time, that format smooth jazz <clears throat> was one that did offer the opportunity to make a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, because it was more, uh, you know, popular, it was more socially acceptable among the masses. Um, and you know, so there were guys who got into that guys and girls and, and, you know, musicians of, of all, uh, shapes and sizes that got into it solely for the purpose to make some money. And, and when that happens, art once again suffers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, that, that starts a whole different discussion of like money and art. And, you know, that's probably a discussion for a different podcast, but, (laughs) uh, but what I can say as far as the, there are, there really are virtues and, and it's something that I think that young musicians probably don't understand as much. Um, you know, Peter to, not to, to get back to Peter too much, but, um, if you've read his book, uh, no Beethoven, he, he mentions, you know, he played on a, a, a handful of David Benoit's records mm-hmm. long before I was ever uh, a part of the equation. Um, and he, I guess, had run into some guys in New York City and uh, some students, and they saw him walking down the street, and they talked to him, and, and one of them was like, listen, man, 
what the hell are you doing playing on a David Benoit record? <laughs> you know, kind of condescendingly. And, he, and, and David's response was, or, I mean, uh, uh, Peter's response was, listen, man, I, I got kids to put through school. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and while I certainly understand that, that side of it, you know, David, um, has made some really beautiful records. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think about the guys that have played on those records. I yeah. mean, for one, John Robinson, uh, Jeff Beccaro, like some of my biggest heroes have played on, on David's albums. Right. And, uh, and his live drummers have always been great, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so I, I consider myself lucky to be a part of that lineage. Mm-hmm. So David is a, is a beautiful musician. And even though he's sort of, um, uh, stamped with that smooth jazz, uh, whatever, you know, the stigma. Um, he really does make some beautiful music. Now, Mindy's gig was never a jazz gig is, is how I would look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, even though she was within the smooth jazz world, her gig was basically a rock gig. Right. <clears throat> and I, as the, the young, you know, big band swinger jazz guy, getting the opportunity to play funk, rock, you know, powerful, hard hitting backbeat music, mm-hmm every night for, I did that gig for like 10 years. <clears throat> yeah. And so, you know, the opportunity to get to do that was actually a, a wonderful learning experience. Um, you know, there, there are, uh, aspects of, uh, playing with artists like that, that, you know, as jazz guys, we could sit there and poo poo it because it's like, well, maybe there's not as much harmonically as that we would like to hear or song form wise, things are incredibly simple or whatever, but you know what, man, people dig the simple stuff and, what we have to do, and we, you know, yes, we have to make a living, and so there's that side of it. Like we're we're here to 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 do a job and make a living and and put food on the table. But you know, we can create artistic opportunities within that without overplaying and turning in the gig into something that it's not. Mm-hmm. And uh, talking about it being simple, like it's not it's not always simple. I think uh, oh. David's David's music is is quite compositionally and improvisationally. Uh, rich, yeah. um, and you know, I I would agree that Mindy's music was probably on the simpler side, the more grooving yeah. side. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but that, but that, that was the challenge to her gig for me. Right, was, was like, how do I take myself away from like bebop guy who wants to play all my you know language that right. I react to every about. single thing? Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> how do I how do I turn that off and learn how to play two and four and make the music feel good? Right. Um, and, and so that's not easy, <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, that, that has its own set of inherent challenges, just like playing any other pop gig or playing a jazz gig or playing a big band gig or, I mean, every type of music that we have the opportunity to play as musicians, as drummers, as, you know, whatever, um, they all have their inherent, uh, challenges. Right. And, and our job needs to be to find what those challenges are. And, and, uh, you know, they always, the, the joke is like, what's the quickest way to make a musician complain? You give them a gig. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and it's true. And it's like, you know, we, we can so often do that and we get dark on situations and stuff, but that's useless. You yeah. know, it's really useless. So why not walk into a situation and be like, Hey, listen, a, I'm making money to be here. So that's the first thing I should be happy about. Right. Secondly, there's a lot of opportunity for me to find nuance um, even if it's a, you know, even if it's Mindy's gig or if it's a Peter White gig or if it's, you know, the gigs that are on the simpler side from a musical standpoint, um, how do I, because, you know, I could walk into those gigs and be easily just as intimidated because <clears throat> how, you know, I'm used to, uh, seeing these guys with like the big gospel chops drummer guys. Right. Right. And I was never really that dude, but how do I learn to lay a pocket down at the level that those guys can? Yeah. You know? And play a backbeat and place it in exactly the right spot mm-hmm. and make sure that my my kick drum lands exactly with the bass player. Yep. You know, that that's something that as jazz drummers we don't think about as much, mm-hmm. but when you get the opportunity to play in those situations, it it's a, it's an incredibly uh wonderful learning experience. And, you know, with Mindy's gig, you know, probably <clears throat> I don't know, 70, 80% of that gig was with a click. Wow. So you're you're really working on your playing with a click chops. And yep. that made it so that when I came, when I got off the road doing that and I started working more in the studios at home, 
my playing with the click chops were considerably better. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I can I can bury a click now far better than I could have, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Right. I remember I had a, a similar experience. Uh, I was in my 20s. I was living in Kansas City and there was a, um, a smooth jazz alto sax player named uh-huh. Joseph Vincelli who okay. uh, lives in Dallas. I think he still lives there. Um, but there was a, like every summer he would, he would come up I 35 from Dallas and, (laughs) and just do a swing through the Midwest and, and play a bunch of these gigs. Um, and I, I got recommended to him one summer. Uh, and I, you know, the, the, the first time, like he offered me two or three gigs in a row and I, I took them because again, I needed the money. I was like, well, I'm going to play this smooth jazz thing. (laughs) Guess I'm not telling anybody about that. Um, but you know, we played we played a couple of festivals and a couple of club gigs, and uh, you know, I found myself having fun. Yeah, um, of course. And it it was the the thing I the thing I realized was that the audience was into it. Yeah. You know, I was I was in my 20s. I was really heavy into jazz and really serious about it, and you know, an aspiring jazz Nazi. And I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't really used to a first of all a big audience. Uh, and second of all uh an audience that's like really into what you're doing and dancing and like they bring their lawn chairs out and it's just it's a big party Uh with these hundreds of people at a festival and you know so whether whether they're uh whether you want to pass judgment on that audience's taste i think is Uh irrelevant if if you can appreciate that experience it's irrelevant and unnecessary right you know it's i mean it's not it's not useful for us to you know, that's like saying, well, it, maybe it's not saying that, you know, one type of art versus another, but, you know, because yes, there are levels, there are, I mean, I, I think it, we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't say that there are some artists out there that really just are not very good musicians. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're, they're there for the sole purpose to make a buck and then they go on and go about their business. They'd be just as happy, you know, selling insurance, you know. <laughs> Whatever, right. you know, they're, they're not committed to this for the, for the art. They're committed to it to, to make money mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and art, what we do, I consider to be art. And it's when that's done strictly for commercial purposes, it loses its artistic value. Right now, uh, I, it is not for me to judge whether that is good or bad according to someone else, mm-hmm. you know, someone else who, um, you know, I, I I've never been a, a a particularly big fan of Kenny G's records, for example. Right. However, what I can tell you is that that guy is a wonderful person. Mm. Um, and he really does genuinely enjoy what he does. Mm-hmm. So why would I take that away from him? Right. You know? Right. And uh, why take it, it away from the audience? From the audience. Like exactly. playing, playing those gigs was my kind of one of my first experience in, in giving an audience what they want. Putting putting what I want or what I think aside, giving the audience what they want and being thanked for yes. it in the form of this energy and this enthusiasm. Yep. Um, and that, to me, I found that you know just as fulfilling as as any sort of artistic aim. Yep. And and that's and that's exactly what you should do in that situation. And and that and then also look for, like I said, like the nuances and the ways that you can approach playing that music mm-hmm. uh, that will not destroy your soul. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you find ways to be able to, to make it, uh, a musical experience, a challenge, um, you know, be it in the nuance of the backbeat or the, or the way that you approach the dynamics of the gig or whatever. There's, there are musical elements that you can bring to absolutely any situation, <clears throat> even if you're playing with some, you know, bar band and you know what, it doesn't matter the situation, right? Smooth jazz, rock, pop, straight ahead, big band, whatever. We, it is our job, uh, and, and I think our, it, it's our responsibility to create music wherever we go. Mm-hmm. And so if you walk into a gig saying, well, this gig sucks, then you've already lost the battle. Right. right. You know? Another thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, this, this uh, interesting and unfortunate episode you had uh, a year or two ago of this uh, big tour getting canceled. Um, and yeah, that wasn't any fun. <laughs> yeah. But the, the way, the way you bounced back from it and the way you sort of recovered from it, uh, was really impressive. And, and I oh, think oh. is, um, something that, that, that people should hear about. So, so talk about that whole chapter in your life. 
<laughs> well, thanks for saying that I, that that was impressive. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> You know, okay, so <clears throat> what happened was we were booked to do, and, and you know, this wasn't just me, this was an entire band and, and of, of all spectacular musicians here in LA, but we were booked uh, to do an all arena tour for the entire summer uh, with the show Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, Brandon Boyd was going to be the, the, the uh, uh, Judas, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the Jesus character was the guy who had done it over in London. Um, uh, Johnny Rotten was going to be King Herod. Like wow. there was, it was, it was a really <laughs> huge cast, you yeah. know, this, this really amazing thing. And it was going to basically be a gigantic rock tour, um, that happened to be set around a musical. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, so, you know, drums went into their big road trunks. They shipped off, uh, in cargo. I had my plane ticket. Uh, had a couple of gigs uh, lining up, you know, to, that I was finishing up in town before I went to go do this. And uh, so uh, this one morning I went to go get my hair cut <clears throat> and uh, I, on my way home or my way out of getting my hair cut, I just finished and I'm, I'm walking to my car and my phone rings and it's the tour manager for Superstar and uh, this wonderful woman named Nikki. And she's like, hey, um, don't get on the plane. <laughs> and I'm like, what? She said, don't get on the plane. The tour is canceled. Now, mind you, my flight was in three days. Right. And rehearsals were starting that, that next day after that. So we right. were four days away from, from starting rehearsals. In, and between the are, rehearsals and the tour, this was like the next four months of your life. Yes. That was, yeah. It was like four months, uh, three plus an extension that they were like, it's absolutely happening. So plan on it and da, 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 da. So, <clears throat> and, and a, a fair, fair salary, you know? Mm-hmm. So we, you know, I had cleared out all of my work for that entire summer. And incidentally, uh, I had taken that tour and it was, you know, I mean, there's, there's all of the opportunities that go along with that. I mean, you're going to be playing Madison square garden for two nights. You're going to be playing Staples center for two nights. You're playing, you know, I mean, these huge yeah. venues and, um, you know, good money working with big, you know, names and, and you're thinking, wow, this is, this is going to be a, a really great summer. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, uh, you know, we were just talking about Mindy. She decided to go ahead and since I was going on the road, um, and another guy was leaving to, um, to go out on another tour. She was like, you know what, <clears throat> I'm going to actually going to change my band. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to let the band go and I'm going to put a new band together, mm-hmm. which for me at that time was like, well, at least I, you know, that's, that's fine. I've done the gig for 10 years. It it's cool. I can move on. Right. And then this other tour was coming up, but then that same day that she decided to fire the band, uh, that tour canceled, oh, man. So, you know, I mean, you lose 80, $90,000 worth of work in a day. Yeah. Uh, that's not an easy thing to come back from. Yeah. Um, uh, but, I think, you know, they always say like the, the moments in life that define you are the most difficult moments and it's not what happens to you. It's how you respond to what happens to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the music business, anything can happen to you Yeah, at any time. Uh, there are no guarantees. Um, there are, you know, there aren't any guarantees in life, but I think that there are even fewer if you're a musician Yeah. Um, or in, in any way some, someone when you're working for yourself, which is what we do, we're all sole proprietors, you know, we're all independent contractors. Um, you know, I have a a cousin who, uh, is a professional golfer Mm -hmm. and he turned pro right after he got out of college and he's done well, but it's a really hard life too. So, you know, athletics, uh, music, any of these things where you're, you are your own commodity, right? Uh, you can face incredibly difficult times. Um, and this one, yeah, it was difficult for me, but the, I think the the important thing to walk away from with this is knowing that, look, for me anyway, and what my wife kept reminding me when we were in the middle of all of this, because, you know, she's freaking out too, yeah, you know, yeah. like, oh, well, now what do we do? Right. Um, but she reminded me that it's like, look, you know, you have, uh, you've been in this town for quite a while. You have developed your reputation in this town. People know who you are. You're going to be fine, but you're going to have to put your nose to the grindstone. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I did. I basically just set out to, uh, to put together as much work 
<laughs> you know, it, you go into triage mode. You're like, right. all right, take everything that you can take. What's the gig pay? 50 bucks? Sure. I'm there. Right. You know? Um, so you go from, you know, making, being on this huge tour to, to just playing these little gigs around town, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you, you, you pick yourself up and you take everything that you can take and you, you know, and I, I did fine, yeah. you know? Uh, in fact, that summer ended up being a pretty good summer. I think I, I probably even made more than I would have <laughs> if we're talking about, you know, just purely on money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it took a little while to bounce back. I'll tell you the hardest part was for me. Um, and I don't know how much this applies to your, your podcast, but I, it, it, maybe it does because it's, you know, I think an important thing for all of us as musicians is to expand into as many different areas as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do a lot of other things. I do, I, I write a lot of music. I write for television and film. Uh, I musical direct, I conduct, I do, I do a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. And in this particular situation, even though I wasn't the musical director, the MD who I had worked for before who was organizing everything called me as well as a couple other guys in town and said, I need help putting a band together. So I had referred and recommended and gotten a lot of my friends hired on this tour. Right. And then when everyone's work went away, I felt incredibly responsible. Mm -hmm. Uh, even though I wasn't and I, and I deep down, I knew that it's like, look, there was nothing I could have done and nothing, you know, no way I could have anticipated this, but that was probably the hardest part was knowing that all of my friends were going to be struggling equally as hard as I was going to be yeah. uh, to put things back together after all this was, you know, after a, a, a monstrous fa- catastrophic failure like that one. Right. Um, you know, knowing that we were all going to be in such a hard place and that, that I was the guy who had put them there. Um, that was the, the hard part for me. Um, but, you know, from a, a career standpoint, you just pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and start it all over again. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the song and <laughs> that's, and that's what we have to do. I mean, it's just, just, just part of the gig. Um, the music business, what's that, uh, Hunter S Thompson quote. It's like the music business is a, Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's long a long past- quote, but it's, it's yeah. horrible. It's full of, yeah. you know, <laughs> It's a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. And there's there's also a negative side. Right. <laughs> and it's and it's true. It's it, it really is a it's a rough business. And um, fortunately for me, you know, like I mentioned before, my father's a musician, uh, and he has seen the ugliest of the ugly side of this business. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a songwriter. He was a he worked within labels for a while. You know, as a as like a. Um, a writer, like a staff writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, you know, he was touring and he was working with these, all these huge artists and, and he's been screwed over more times than I think he would even care to try to recall. Yeah. Um, but so growing up, I witnessed that I witnessed a lot of the screwing over. I witnessed, you know, people who you thought were close friends who just knife in the throat, you know, I yeah. mean, just really, really terrible stuff. Yeah. Um, and, but, at the end of the day, and I kind of go back to even what we talked about in the very beginning, we don't get into this business to get rich. We don't get into this business to become famous. We don't get into this business because we, we get into this business because it's what we love to do. Yeah. And if you're not, uh, Jiggs Wiggum said in a clinic that I took with him in the college band that if you can see yourself doing anything other than music, you should go do that. Hmm. Um, which did not, you know, I first took that to mean like, man, this guy's dark. Right. But it, but it wasn't. It wasn't dark. What it was was him saying, like, look, this is a really, really difficult business. Yeah. Um, and the only reason you should be here is because you want nothing else from your life than to play your instrument, make art with other musicians, and live your life that way. And right. sometimes you're gonna be on top. Sometimes sometimes you're the nail, sometimes you're the hammer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that summer I was the nail. Right. Uh, but you know, I've come in back in other situations and I've been the hammer, and, and that's just that's how this goes, yeah. you know. You were one of the first, uh, if not the first, uh, U.S. endorser for Sakai Drums. Is that correct? I was the first. Yeah, it's true. And so Sakai is about what five years old now? About the well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, in the entity that we know it as, but right. honestly, but that company's been around for decades, right? Um, uh, it's a family-owned company that's been passed down through multiple generations, currently run by Azo Nakata, but um, 
they they made drums for the last like 40 years for another company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you got, which we will remain nameless, but if you got one of those companies drums, it was basically a Sakai drum with a different badge on it. Right. And, uh, and so when that company decided to take their production to China, uh, Sakai said, okay, well then we have all this infrastructure to build drums and it's what we do again, yeah. you know, um, and you know, they're going through a similar, uh, not a similar, I mean, when, when they, when that company left, they're going, uh Oh yeah. The bottom dropped out. <laughs> the bottom dropped out. Yeah. Uh, but they have made lemons into lemonade and mm-hmm. they've made an incredible company and now they're able to, to make drums the way they want to make them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're spectacular. Um, and, and now it's, it, they are their own brand. Right. Uh, and I'm, I'm proud to play them not only because a, yes, they, in my opinion, they are absolutely the finest drums that you're going to find. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you can't build drums for that long and not learn something, yeah. you know? Uh, and they've got a couple of patented things that they can do uh, that no one else can do in terms of how they build the shells. And they, they are uh, – they're special. Yeah. They're really special. Yeah. yeah. They, I, I own a, a Sakai snare. Um, yep. And the first thing I noticed about it was uh, – I mean obviously they sound amazing. But the thing that really jumped out at me was how those drums feel yeah. under the sticks. Yep. What, what is that? Well, you know, <laughs> if I could tell you all the voodoo, I wish I knew. Uh, <laughs> but, but I've been to the factory, and there, there's a the guy that is their chief d- drum designer. It's a guy named Shun. Um, he's kind of uh, like this little savant guy. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say much. He's really quiet. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but he makes decisions about the size of the air holes, you know, the vents. Um, you know, the bearing edges, he makes those decisions and, and the way that they end up getting put together, they feel great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same is true, not only of their snare drums, but of the Tom Toms of, of every drum in their line. Right. Um, interestingly, we just did a, uh, uh, there's a company called Drumagog. It's a, a sa- like a sample library company. Mm-hmm. And just last week we were in, um, I have, I have basically every kit in that they make at right. this I've got a, I have a maple kit. I've got a birch. I've got a celestial, which is their hybrid shell high end kit. Mm -hmm. And I have a trilogy, which is their three ply Mm -hmm. kit. Um, and you know, multiple sizes within each one. Uh, the birch and maple is kind of one kit. Uh, but they're, but it's like half birch and half maple and I can use it for different purposes. And Mm -hmm. that one lives in cartage for me now. Uh, so when I have a, a record date or a TV date or whatever that runs from cartage. I don't really see those drums other than at a studio. They don't right. live at home anymore. Um, and then the other two kits live here at, at my studio, the, the celestial being my main sort of studio recording kit at home. Mm-hmm. And then the trilogy is my run around town kit and, uh, slash if I have like a rock situation, cause I have a 24 for that and it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> <clears throat> but what was really fun is last week, you know, we had to, uh, Korg is the distributor for Sakai in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, this guy Jeff over at Korg called and said, hey, can, can we do a sample session um, for Drumagog and use all your drums? It's like, man, that sounds like fun, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so we went into Ocean Studio over in Burbank and we sampled every drum in the Sakai line. Uh, so there were – I might get the, num- the numbers wrong in this, but I think there are 10 bass drums. There are – 15 toms mm-hmm. and I think 10 snare drums um, that we sampled for this thing. Wow. Uh, it was cool. two, two full days of just hitting the drums at all different volume levels and multiple hits of each and right hands and left hands. And the way that it gets programmed into the software now, you can like you can program it so that the snare drum has right and left hands. Wow. Uh, it, it's pretty amazing. But you can actually – you know, you can't get, it's funny cause somebody was like, man, you're taking all the work away from yourself. I'm like, well, <laughs> not really. I mean, you know, you can mock things up with those and you can get great drum sounds and on certain things where you maybe don't need, you know, you don't feel like you need a drummer, then you'll at least get good drum sounds, but mm-hmm. you'll never get the pocket of a real drummer. Right. You know? Right. Uh, and that's, that's the difference. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, if you, if you want to check out what the drums sound like, pick up Drumagog and, and goof around with the drum sounds. Cool. Yeah. And, and for those listeners in the Nashville area, they're going to be doing, uh, like a, a day unto themselves, uh, right before summer Nam. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Yeah, I was just talking to them about that. That's going to be pretty exciting. So some of the the Nashville artists are going to be down there, and uh, and the guys from Korg, um, the you know, artist relations guys and stuff are all going to be there. It should be a pretty cool thing. I actually might want to try to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try as well. Should. Um, and the the other thing that jumped out uh, to me about those drums is that they're they're not. It doesn't seem to me like they're trying to reinvent the wheel. No, they're. It, it's like a Japanese knife. Like it's not. <laughs> It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't look newfangled. It's not. It, they're just trying to get the purest steel, the sharpest edge. And it seems yep. like Sakai is, is just constantly trying to perfect sort of the established uh, yep. drum construction technique. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Uh, the, the one sort of – they've made some innovations. But, yes, they're not – even those innovations are not like, you know, uh, you don't look at it and go, wow, what's that? Right. You know, right. you just go, Oh, well that makes sense. Like, <laughs> like for example, the, uh, the way that the floor Tom mounts work, uh, for the, for the legs, mm -hmm. instead of them attaching to the shell, they attach to the two of the, uh, lugs on, you know, they span across two lugs right. on each part of the base, uh, the floor Tom. Sorry. So thereby eliminating anything else that's touching the shell and, and, uh, inhibiting, resonance mm -hmm. and you know you look at things like that and you're like well why didn't anybody else think of that that's brilliant it's <laughs> yeah. kind of like a rims mount but it's more solid and it sounds better right so you know things like that are are innovative but they're not again yeah you're not changing the entire way that the drum looks or that works or whatever but there is definitely something about and i think this about the japanese culture i've been there a lot uh we play in japan a lot and uh in fact, the last time I, I went over there, um, they the council the consulate said we need to know how many times you've entered the country for your visa, and uh, I had to go through my old passport and my new passport, and I I realized that that was my seventeenth trip to Japan. <laughs> I'm like, man, I I go there a lot, don't I? And yeah. I kind of know my way around, and I and I feel like I know the culture a fair bit now, and I have a lot of Japanese friends that live in the U.S. and uh, and so. It fits culturally mm -hmm. the way that they operate. When you, if you've ever been to Tokyo and you walk around and you look like the streets are perfect, they're you know the buildings are clean and perfect. People are respectful, and it's it's the way, it, it's how it is culturally. And I think that that translates into the instruments. I yeah. think that there's a, a respect for the art of mm -hmm. creating drums. Yeah, that, that not just want. respect. It's like reverence. Reverence, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I like to, to do on this podcast with people I interview is, is uh, get them to shine a light on, on someone that they play with a lot who is not as well known as, as they should be. Um, I interviewed Dan Schnell a little while ago, and one of the reasons yeah. I wanted to interview him is because he's like a, a musical partner and a, and a brother with Josh Nelson, who's yeah. a brilliant pianist who I love. Um, so the guy I want you to talk about for a little bit is uh, David Hughes, the bassist, uh, um, yeah. and talk about your your musical partnership with him over the years. David is David is like my brother, man, and you know the relationship between a bassist and a drummer is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know you've got to be able to lock up and and you know we've even it's it's kind of getting to the point now in LA where it's like if you call David you probably call me mm -hmm. and if you call me you probably call David right. you know it we end up on so much work together um he has again a reverence and a respect for time for groove for making the people he's selfless mm -hmm. uh he makes the people around him sound better myself included i love playing with david because i feel like i play better when he's in the band. Mm. Um, and it may, and I'm not sure that it's that I play better. I'm reasonably convinced that it's just that he makes me sound better. Mm -hmm. He probably covers my mistakes really well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, we, and so even outside of our, our musical relationship, we've got an incredibly strong personal friendship. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been on the road together for so long now. I mean, so I, I met David, we, you know, we do Benoit's gig together, um, as well as many other things, but that's where it started. And in fact, we met in Cuba. <laughs> uh, he, we, we met in Cuba on a gig, um, for, it was at the, it was at Guantanamo Bay. It was at the base. They did a big jazz festival down there. I'm not sure if they still do it, but they used to, they did it every year. And I think ours might've been the first year that they did it. 
Um, but they all flew us down to the base and it's a sort of a funny story. We had to fly over a hurricane, uh, which was not fun with, with military pilots. And so those dudes, you know, they're kind of cowboys. Yeah. (laughs) So they're dodging air pockets and stuff. And I look behind me and, and a couple of the guys from the Rippingtons were, were sitting right behind me. This guy, Dave Carasoni, who's the drummer for the Rippingtons and, and, uh, and is a brilliant musician himself. And Kim stone, who was playing with him at the time, they're standing behind me. They're looking at me like, I don't know. I think we're going down. (laughs) (laughs) We could, this could be it. Yeah, This is it. End of the Rippingtons right here. End of of like five different artists in the jazz world. Yeah. Yeah all on one plane. It's like one of those buddy Holly moments, you know, you're going, Oh God, this is, this could be it. But we, uh, we, we made it, uh, obviously. And, uh, you know, we got there and, and this guy, David, I hadn't met before, but he gets up there and he had this like bleached blonde hair at the time mm-hmm. and, uh, walks up with this six string, this black six string F bass and proceeded to just completely, I say shred, but not shred in the in the ter- in the sense of like a bazillion notes, but right. just owned yeah. the gig. Yeah, owned it. Like every note he played was exactly what needed to be there at that very moment. Right, uh, and not not one note more. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's very much you know he's from Sweden, and he has that sort of uh, Northern European Scandinavian sensibility about him. He's he has no ego. He's very cool and calm. Right. Uh, um, he's, he's very his, reserved, very reserved. Uh, but musically it, what that establishes is a guy who's willing to sit there and just let the groove happen mm-hmm. and not feel like he has to interject himself every five seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes it really, really, really fun to play with. Um, he's also well-versed in every style of music. Like I can call him for absolutely anything. I mean, he can feel equally as comfortable playing Arco in a bass section as he does playing, you know, in a big band playing upright or playing pop, funk, rock, whatever stuff in studio. And it's, it's not uncommon for a bassist to, to double on upright or electric, but to play them both as well as he does, as well as he does is a rare thing. It really, really is a guy who feels comfortable soloing in both situations mm-hmm. at that level, uh, a guy who can read at that level mm-hmm. in, on, on every possible instrument. And, you know, now kind of like me, I mean, as we're getting, you know, we both met when we were a bit younger and now we're not quite so young anymore and we're staying in town more and doing more studio work. He's got a bazillion sounds now, you know, mm-hmm. he's got so many different instruments and he's a, he's a great guy to call for anything. And, and he really is my, my first call go to for everything. Like if I, cause I'm doing a lot more producing these days and, uh, and I'm really enjoying it. But when I have to produce a record, I want, I want him. I want Andrew Sinewick. I want Jeff Babco. Mm-hmm. And then I'm happy because then I know no matter what, it's going to be perfect. Right. It's going to sound right. It's going to feel right. It's going to be read right. It's going to take no time at all to get the right take. Mm-hmm. These these are the the premier guys for me. Yeah. What is what has he taught you about about playing the drums? <laughs> uh, you know, I think the thing he's taught me the most <clears throat> is the simplicity mm-hmm. that he plays with, and the and the willingness to to do that too. Yeah. You know? Uh, and it's, it's a lesson that I feel like I keep on having to learn over and over again, which, which maybe is a bit of a fault of me, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, Peter's talked to me about that for years. And then, you know, the, all of my other musicians that I love playing with, I feel like they're always kind of reminding me that like simplicity is the key. You know, we just, um, I'm pretty excited. We just were in the studio last week doing an organ trio record, um, with this guy, Carrie Frank mm-hmm. and, uh, and Will Brom playing guitar. Yeah. So Carrie on B3 and, and Will on guitar. And, uh, we've got this group called strangers on a Saturday night and we just finished a record and, uh, I go back and I listen to the record and, um, you know, it's the first time I've gotten to do a kind of an artsy, your own creative project record in a yeah, long time. Yeah. I've spent so much time doing TV stuff and commercial things or, or things for other people's records or whatever over the last couple of years. And I finally gotten to go back in and do a record where, yeah, this is ours and I can hear it in my playing. I, I, there's some overplaying on this record. It, <laughs> it's not, to, it's, I don't think it's egregious or, or, or completely gratuitous, but it's, it's like, you, it's you got, there. You, you got a little room to shred and you took yeah, it. Yeah. And I took it, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe had, had, uh, Peter been watching, I probably wouldn't have taken quite so many chances, <laughs> but you know, uh, I, it's interesting, like I, you know, to keep reminding yourself that simplicity is the key, and and David is really good about reminding me that. 
Yeah. 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 Um, so before we wrap up, uh, your, your resume is a mile long. You've accomplished many things, many artists and many areas of music playing and producing and et cetera. What, what is on the horizon for you? What, what professional or musical goals are you sort of keeping your eye on right now? Well, you know, I'm in this interesting sort of transitional period, I think, in my career, and it's something that I've I've enjoyed at the same time that I've struggled with, um, because <clears throat> and and really honestly, that that superstar thing was kind of the the big uh, catalyst for me to make these changes. Um, I decided I didn't want to be on the road anymore, mm-hmm. um, and that said, I am still doing a little bit of touring here and there. I've been really fortunate to do some stuff with Jane Monheit lately. Oh right, uh, right. <clears throat> And she's brilliant. Um, and, but what's interesting about that gig is I'm not actually playing drums. I'm playing percussion because uh, her husband is a super happening swinging drummer. Mm. And uh, so there's there's really no need for her to have two. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but her record has a lot of percussion on it. So she, we, we did a tour together at the end of last year with David Benoit, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we had done a record at the beginning of last year. And, uh, and when we toured around it a little bit. Um, and she, she was about to release this new album that she just put out, which is brilliant. And I highly recommend you checking it out. Uh, Nicholas Payton produced it and Mm. he plays on it too, and does a lot of the arranging and it's just beautiful. And she swings her tail off on it, Mm -hmm. but, and Ricky's playing on that, her husband, Rick Montabano. And, uh, but she, she came to me and said, you know, I, I love playing with you. We've become really good friends. Would you be down to play percussion on, on some stuff? Uh, and I was like, sure, why not? You know, I haven't done it in a long time. Yeah. I'm certainly no Congero, you know, right. I'm certainly no, like hotshot percussionist, but you know, I know enough to be dangerous. And so sure. I'll <laughs> <be good shot. laughs> and, uh, and we ended up having a really, really great time. You know, Ricky and I locked up great. Um, I think we both sort of think like drummers, which, which is both good and bad. Like there are moments where we end up stepping on each other because right. I'm thinking like a drummer and, and I need to remember that he's the drummer and I got to get out of the way. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we we were able to to lock up really well from a, a time standpoint, and it really um, the band gelled. So I'll be doing some of that touring. But aside from that, my my personal goals for my career at this point are more about uh, working in the studios here in LA, which mm-hmm. has been great lately. I've been doing a lot more of that, you know, TV stuff and uh, film things. I'm also doing a lot more writing, which I'm I'm really enjoying. I've I've been writing with a a, a partner, this guy named Matt Kaczynski, who you know, he's got, he wrote the theme for like Good Morning America mm-hmm. and um, 2020 and he's got these huge TV themes and stuff. Yeah. And so we, we together the last two years have done the, the red carpet music for the Oscars. Um, and uh, we just did a bunch of new rebranding themes for ABC and we, you know, we've done a lot of work together and, and that seems to be like a, a path that I'm really enjoying Yeah. Uh, as well as excuse me, as well as, uh, producing and, and, uh, and musical directing for things. I'm, I'm musical directing a show in about a month at Disney hall where I get to exercise my conducting chops as well as my orchestrating chops, which right. is sort of, uh, another side to what I do, even though, you know, I don't, I certainly don't consider myself to be a, a, a particularly innovative or, or, um, uh, you know, whatever brilliant, composer but i can get the job done right. and uh, it's one of the things that i'm glad for having uh, been exposed to you know through school and and especially at rollins like a lot of the the uh, teachers that i was exposed to at rollins were like look you got to get hip to all of this stuff and now you know i i can go and orchestrate for the for the band at, at for spotlight and i i know how to conduct the group oh yeah what is the spotlight awards it's a you know it's a, a youth arts scholarship program that the music center of LA puts together. And it's for basically all of Southern California. Um, and there are two winners in each category. There's a jazz category, a classical voice, non-classical voice, which is, you know, kind of a big umbrella. There's dance. There's like eight different categories. Um, but each winner, uh, gets $5,000 scholarship. Uh, and then there are other fringe benefits as well too. Like some, some kids get to go to the Aspen music festival and it's, it's a pretty special thing. And Mm -hmm. I've been a judge for it for many years, but then in the last, I guess, I think this is my sixth year as the, as the music director. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it poses some really interesting challenges for me. Uh, not the least of which is, is, uh, scheduling <laughs> yeah to, you know figure out like all of the different things and then oh yeah i still have to write this piece of music and and uh working on all those things but it's um 
it's a pretty special program, something I'm really enjoying being involved in, but it, but it ties into where, you know, I'm trying to take my career now, which is less being on the road and more a studio guy and a producer and a, and a, a writer, arranger, you know, mm-hmm. the, going along those lines. Um, I'm never going to not play and I'm never going to completely give up touring because I do enjoy going out and being in front of an audience. And, and, uh, especially like you said, when it's the larger appreciative audiences, it really is, is energizing and invigorating to play for those kind of you know situations right but i also love like showing up at warner brothers soundstage and the red light going on with a full orchestra and just nailing it on the first take like there's some something about that there's there's so much um i don't know uh testosterone (laughs) (laughs) about about that kind of a situation and i I love it in fact i i did recently um we were doing agent carter the abc show and uh, we got, I got called for the season finale of that and um, I got there and there's a pile of music and I'm, I'm looking through and literally, you know, if, let's say there's, you know, 25 cues or something that we've got to do. I played on three of them and I'm <laughs> like, well, this is boring, you know, I, I, and, and no joke, like, you know, you get, it's tacit, 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 right. tacit, oh, like, oh, okay, I play. And it's like two notes on a cymbal. <sighs> well, that's you know, I'm like, oh man, come on. But then of course the very, very last piece is this like epic, really difficult, crazy, big, <clears throat> excuse me, big band reading thing. But even then I was like, all right, well, cool. All right. I'm here for this one thing. But then the principal percussionist walks into the drum booth in the back and goes, Hey man, so you ready to come join us out here? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm going to go out and play perk too. Yeah. Which, you know, but that that's the brute, the, the wonderful thing about this town is that one minute you're playing, you know, gong and, and bass drum and snare drum. And then you turn around and you're playing drum set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful for knowing how to do all of that stuff. And, and, uh, you know, my education when I was younger, that gave me the ability to do it. But, you know, uh, that's, so that's kind of where I see my, my career going. At and this you're, point. you're, you're hitting on a, a kind of recurring theme, uh, on this podcast, which is that when you're young, when you're in school, you know, you envision your career going a certain way, you're going to get on tour, you're going to get with a band, you're going to go in the studios, you're just going to play drums until your hands fall off. Right. all day every day and some people actually do that uh but yep. but whether or not they do i think so many so many drummers i've talked to and listened to have found other avenues as their career pr- progresses yep. um that are also music related that they're also passionate about you know they never they never stop playing it's still kind of the centerpiece of their work um yep. but they all remain open and enthusiastic about about you know other other ways to go Absolutely. And that's an incredibly important thing. And I, I, one of the things to remember beyond, and it goes within playing the drums as, as well as going outside of it, you know, at the end of the day, we, we do this because we're passionate about it. We do this because we love music. We love art, but we do have to put food on the table. We do have to keep our light bill turned on, you know, Mm -hmm. like we, all of that stuff still has to happen. So the, one of the greatest lessons I ever learned was that, you know, the more things that you can do, the more things you can get paid for. <laughs> so, you know, it's like diversifying your stock portfolio. If you put everything all in one stock, you know, right. your, your yields will be dramatically less. Mm-hmm. If you diversify, you stand a better chance of making more money. Mm-hmm. So diversify in your career. And what you'll find, what I found anyway, and I assume what anyone else who, who went into this, and you may or may not, and, and certain things are, are, certain people are more cut out for certain things than others. But for me, what I found was when I started to diversify and I started to write more and challenge myself to do all these other things, I found that I enjoyed them far more than I ever knew that I would. Mm-hmm. And uh, so not only was it putting me in a position where I was able to continue to make money and more money, which, you know, again, I, I hate. I hate that that's part of what we do because money is like the root of all evil. And I would rather that we didn't ever have to think about money, mm-hmm. but we do, mm-hmm. you know, the mortgage still has to get paid. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the more opportunities you can have to, to make it is, is good. But for me, in addition to making more money, I also found more things that I enjoyed doing. Right. Um, and so life becomes even more fulfilled at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Uh, it was great talking with you. Uh, great catching up with you. And, and for those listening, I, I should point out that, uh, my, my time in LA was, uh, as successful as it was largely in part because of, of Jamie Tate and the, the help that he gave me when he was there. 
I don't know about that. No, I, think I know. I know about that. It's absolutely true. And, and I thank you for it. Listen, you were successful because you're a great musician and a good guy. And that's, and that's why it has nothing to do with me, but uh, thanks for saying so. Thank you, man. <laughs> thanks so much for doing this. You got it, man. So much good stuff in there from Jamie. His business chops are every bit as sharp as his musical chops. Uh, I meant what I said at the end there. Uh, Jamie was my first and strongest ally during my time in L.A. Uh, He was just constantly sending me to sub for him on gigs or recommending me to band leaders and musical directors who needed a drummer. Uh, And it was over many lunches and coffees and beers that uh, he and I would talk about how to navigate that scene. So I'll always be grateful to him for that. If you're in the Nashville area on Tuesday, June 21st, you can check out that Sakai Day we were talking about. That's going to be at Soundcheck, which is at 740 Cowan Street in Nashville. This event is free and open to the public, and they'll have the full line of Sakai drums set up for demo. Nashville area Sakai artists will also be there, including some who have been featured on Working Drummer podcasts, such as Ben Caesar, Trey Gray, and just recently Eddie Bayers. You can go to workingdrummer.net and check out those interviews. Matthew Krause and I will also both be there, so please come say hi if you see us. Thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance on the podcast, and thanks as always for listening. Take care.